Hey guys, welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Now, I had the really just the absolute pleasure of being with my next guest about two months ago in an event that really is going to be one of the transformative events, I think, for anyone interested in buying a home. We'll talk about that at another time. But an opportunity to meet my guest today, and I was really intrigued with her um, at that event and have been trying to figure out how we can get her on Let's Be Blunt ever since. And I have, hey, today we lucked out. We have her. So let's jump right on in and let's get busy. My guest today is a former federal prisoner turned advocate who received worldwide attention when Kim Kardashian advocated for her release from a mandatory life sentence without parole for a first-time nonviolent drug case. After almost 22 years in federal prison, she was granted clemency in 2018 and later a full pardon of President Donald Trump in 2020. Her powerful story has been deemed a catalyst for the passage of the First Step Act the most significant criminal justice legislation in recent history. She's an ambassador for the Stand Together Foundation and the board member for Duke University Wilson Center for Science and Justice. She was appointed to the board of Ready for Life, Ready Life, sorry, a financial tech platform and was featured in a commercial that aired on ESPN during the 2022 Orange Bowl Classic. Alice Marie Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today on Let's Be Blunt. Thank you, Montel. I'm so happy to be here and let's be blunt. Let's be blunt. That's what I want you to do. And you are blunt. Every time I, when I've heard you speak, you are as blunt as you can be. And I really appreciate that for you. But, you know, let's back up a second before we jump into your story. Let's talk a little bit about where your story begins. Where were you born and, and where were you raised? I was born in Mississippi. In fact, I'm in my hometown. I just moved back here a couple of years ago to Olive Branch, Mississippi. So Owls Branch is near where? It's near Memphis, Tennessee. Near Memphis, okay. Yeah, it's it's like we border Memphis. I can almost throw a rock and I'm in Memphis, but really in eight minutes I'm in Memphis. So um, I moved. I, I think I told. I think I mentioned to you that my wife is from Jackson, Tennessee. Yes, no one here, but but we're about an hour and a half away from Memphis. So I fly into Memphis before we drive to Jackson to get there. So I'm, I'm gonna be down in your neck of the woods over the Christmas holidays. You're going to have to come over if you're in my neck of the woods. Uh, if you're here by the 23rd, I'm going to have a little mixer here. I'd okay. love to well, maybe maybe we will try to see if we can drive over and see you. Okay. For sure. But you were raised, I mean, what's your family life like? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I've got uh, seven grandchildren. I have three children that live here. One is in Arizona. I have a huge, I call my family a tribe. We're not just a family, so many of us, so many nieces and nephews. I have siblings, uh, have six other siblings. Uh, I'm from a family of nine. My oh. oldest two sisters passed away, but when oh, we get together, it's something serious, I'm telling you. I can imagine that. So now your family, your parents were sharecroppers, is that right? My parents were sharecroppers right here. And... Uh, it's just really amazing. I never thought, Montel, that I would come back to Mississippi. I'm just being honest with you. I was born doing Jim in Jim Crow, Mississippi. Gotcha. And so you can just imagine Mississippi has totally changed. The neighborhood that I live in now, there is no way I could have lived here before. But it's it's built up. Uh, it's totally, totally different. We have a lot of things going on here. I haven't lived in Mississippi in 40 years. So Wow. 
Well, so let's talk a little bit about your story. So as you were growing up, um, you got uh, you got pregnant early, right? And while you were in high school? 15. And I had a shotgun wedding. The only thing that was missing was a shotgun. Gotcha. But it, was probably, it was probably behind the door somewhere, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you, Montel, but it was funny because we had a dog named Mike. And um, when I was coming down the little makeshift aisle my parents had made for us a sidewalk from the house, on the wedding pictures, Mike is on the picture, the dog. And we were saying our vows, Mike is looking up at me so sad. I oh. should have known that that was an omen. Oh, well, I mean, so... I mean, now you got married young. I mean, and you had your first child. Did you go to school then? Go to? Could you finish going going to school? Did you get your high school degree? I did. I uh, graduated uh, in '73. Uh, so this is literally I'm back home. I had two children in school. As a matter of fact, I had my oldest two. The first one they put me out of school. I couldn't go back because you couldn't go to school pregnant in Mississippi back then. It was considered a total disgrace to do that. And gotcha. so I missed the first year, Montel, and I had my friends bring their books to me. I studied their subject matters. I take their tests. And when I went show back up, I should have been a sophomore. But I convinced them that I knew the curriculum and they let me take a test. They tried to trick me. They didn't know that I really did know the subject matters. And they had from another uh, school put together the hardest questions that they could find for me. And it making a ninety-eight percent. They said, "Go to go to the next grade." Well, when oh, I got true. pregnant again, they had these little baby doll tops, and I was going into my senior year, so I knew not to tell anyone I was pregnant. So my daughter was born August the fifteenth, my youngest daughter, and I was only one week late getting back to school because I stayed out three weeks, and I just caught up and started passing their test again. And so my life has really been one of uh, perseverance, one of struggle. But I learned some lessons from my parents in how to struggle, how to struggle well and how to not be a victim. But as we say, uh -huh. to be a not only a survivor, but a victor. And so I would need those lessons when I went to prison. I know. Let's, before you talk about prison, let's let's talk a little bit more about the 90s. I mean, OK, we're really the, the 80s. You graduated school, 73. Graduate from school, 73, right? Uh-huh. And you started off, what was your first career? What was your job? What did you do? Well, actually, where I'm living at now, they still had segregation for office jobs. But I had taken, I had gone to this uh, Sawyer Secretary of College half the day in my senior year. And I could type Nanny some words a minute. And so I integrated the, the offices here. So in Olive Branch, where I'm living, you know, the older crowd, they know that I was the one that broke it. I broke the segregation mode for black individuals to work in offices. So I had to be better than anybody. So that job, uh, you know, just led me to other things. When the company closed, I started taking some college classes and the students were so kind to me. They saw how hard I was trying and they would keep my children for me while I took college classes. And that's great. So then you, so you went from your first job was an office job, clerk job, and your second job. And those type of skills, uh, Montel would open the door. So I made my children, all of them, I had five children in all, and they had to take typing uh, because it opened doors for me to get my foot in the door with different companies. 
And one of those companies will be the last one that I worked at before I went to prison. And which company was that? FedEx. It was Federal Express then. Sure. I had a very low employee number. And because I could type so well, they hired me for the secretarial pool. And as I did in every job that I ever had, I'd make sure that they noticed what a good worker I was. I would be there early and whatever projects they had, I'd raise my hand. Yes, I'll take it on. And within two years, I was in management after starting there. So I worked, I had a career with them. You know, your, your CEO was a graduate of the school that I went to, which was the United States Naval Academy. Oh, um, really? Yeah, with Fred Smith. Uh-huh. Um, right. And, um, and Fred also back then did a lot uh, for desegregating, I think, uh, Memphis and, and parts of the South because he opened up the doors for uh, pilots that came in and started being working for FedEx that were African-American, uh, yeah. different nationalities. So, yeah, he did a lot of work for that. Fred's a really uh, well, a hero in a way from our, our- well, he loves Fred Smith because he did give African-Americans opportunities. They had a strong policy of promoting from within. And I still remember their, pol- their uh, philosophy was people, service, profit. If you take care of your people, they're going to provide the service, which is going to equate to profit. So they always put people first. And, you know, for me, it was a great company to work for. I had many, many opportunities there. I, I was I had a lightning rod career. I was moving so fast and able to do so many things with them. Things were going well, but then things were also not going well, right? Relationship-wise? Relationship-wise, uh, my marriage... I guess a lot of teenage marriages end like that, like mine, but it didn't have to. But my husband, ex-husband was also, he was older than me, a little older than me, but he wasn't ready for marriage. And he still wanted to live single. Got it. And so, you know, looking back at it, at the time, it was very hurtful. And I had a lot of unforgiveness toward him for a while. And I had to start seeing things through his eyes that so he was also young. He, I was 15. He was 17. And so he was still he wanted to live that single life. I couldn't because I'm at home with the children. Plus, I didn't want to. I had grown up in a very uh, Christian family. Uh, and my, you just don't get divorced. So, you know, for me, it was just not an option until it got to the point that it was just too just not not good for me mentally. I think I even had a breakdown, but was never treated for it. And that's what, that's what sent you in a spiral at your work, right? I mean, you started getting in that trouble at work, but you, you were, it started impacting the way you worked. It did because he had disappeared out of our lives. He gotten on drugs and the children hadn't seen him for a few years. And when I did start dating Montel, because I, I really spent all of my time with my children and really, I focused on work and getting ahead and making sure that I had money for my children to go to college and that I want to set a good example for them of good work ethics because my parents set that example for us. And so when I did, when me and my husband did divorce after 19 years, I'm single. And I mean, for the first time, I'm single. For the, um, I started dating. I met the wrong person. And he was a gambler. I started gambling because it just seemed like so much fun. I'm I'm reliving my 20s now. I'm having fun. I'm out there doing things I've never done before. And I, I literally can look back on it 
I was losing more than I was winning, of course. And I got myself, my life was going crazy, just totally spiraling out of control. I lost my job and just found myself about to lose the house that I had bought, that I was buying. I had to file, I'm right here at bankruptcy and don't know what to do. I'm really going nuts at this point. You go there, you're divorced too at this time, right? I'm divorced at this time. And you lost, your home, lost your home. And then so did, some, did somebody approach you? Did you approach somebody else? I mean, it's really kind of, talk to me about how the whole drug thing started. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be very blunt about this too. Be blunt with this one. I never thought that I would commit a crime because I really didn't have a criminal mind. And when I look back on it, it was like the perfect storm when I was approached by someone to be, um, uh, to be basically a telephone mule. And it was a family member in another state that asked me if I knew, and she was married to someone who was in the drugs. And she asked me if I knew someone that uh, could move some drugs for them. I was so insulted because I didn't. But she had seen, her husband had seen uh, my ex at the dog track. So she was asking me that, but she knew the answer. And I think she thought I knew the answer, but I didn't. I didn't know that was something he did on the side. So, so your, your ex-husband was involved with this? No. You, no. No, my ex-boyfriend. Ex I'm divorced. I didn't see my husband anymore until the death of my son. Oh, my son. I'm so sorry. But yeah. then, okay, so your ex-boyfriend, who was a guy who was hanging out of the track, they assumed that since he was into drugs, that they could approach you because you might yes. understand how to do this, right? Well, yes, but I thought that his money he had was his racetrack winnings. I didn't know he was dabbling into some other things. I honestly didn't. He kept that very well hidden. And when I told him that uh, I had been approached, he said, well, what did you say? I'm like, it scared me the way he asked me. And I said, no, do you? Because I, I wanted to hear that answer. He said, yeah, you're looking at him. And so that's really how this started. Um, they knew I didn't know anyone in the streets. And I found out later that that's really what they do. Uh, women get caught up in this craziness. Uh, you And because of conspiracy uh, laws, you're charged with the same thing as everyone else. And if you don't take a plea, you're going to be the at the top. You're going to be the queen pen or the king pen. If you don't take that plea, you're going to get spanked. Got it. So now they approach you. Explain this whole thing about a phone mule. So they would use your phone. No, they would call my number. Okay. Uh, my boyfriend at the time gave them my phone number. So when they would make come in town, they would call my number. I called his number. They never tell me who they are. I'm not in any drug meetings. I'm not setting up any deals. I'm not selling drugs. And so, you know, somehow I got caught up in this craziness. The first time I got $1,000 and literally that kept food on my table and paid my utility, kept my utilities from being turned off. And I was such an idiot because they were making a lot of money. I'm the fool that was not making the money. And they would call. And so when one of the guys who was bringing drugs got busted, he had my phone number. And so that's how everything came down, everything started falling apart. And they offered me, uh, because they knew, they really knew what my role was, but 
they offered me, uh, first of all, no time if I could testify. And that really scared me, too, because who am I going to testify against? I can't give you any names because I don't know their names. I just know that I pass messages on. So then when I refused to testify, because what they wanted me to do was really and truly bring some other people down. And I didn't I didn't really have I knew I didn't have the information they wanted. But I'm going to back up just a little bit, Montel, if you don't mind. Please do. Before everything fell apart, you know, it's something how just when you say I'm going to get I'm not going to do this because I knew it was wrong. And I couldn't even hardly sleep at night because I know I'm involved in criminal activities and I don't want to be separated from my children. My youngest son was killed in a scooter Mm. accident. His 14-year-old brother, uh, he had a scooter in our neighborhood and my baby son, Corey, we called him Coco, he was riding on the back without his helmet on. He had just got this kid in play haircut. So he didn't want the helmet to you know, squash his head, squash his hair down rather. And when they left the house, he had his helmet on. He had it in his hand rather, but he never put it on. And so they hadn't gone very far. When they arrived at the stop sign, another teenager hit them because there was not a stop sign on the other side. The tree branches were overhanging in the road. And I guess he panicked and he left them in the he left them in the street. Mm. He, and he kept going. I guess he went home. And my son that was 14, he uh, he was such a good child. But he just really started crying and begging God to take him instead of his little brother. But my son had sustained a fatal head injury. And I didn't find out until I came home from prison how this, you know, just what he saw. You know, he he finally talked about it. He never would talk about it. And I was really so out of my head, so crazy at that moment. It's like a blur even today. I received a phone call from Columbia where my cousin lived with her with her husband on the day that my son was killed. That one call from Columbia. And that's the phone call in my trial that they said was a Colombian connection. I never even talked to her. The doctors at the hospital had given me sedatives. Someone else answered the phone, but they later on used that October 2nd date as the as one of the Colombian drug cartel phone calls. And that was a relative calling to check on me. So here I am with no insurance and no money to bury my son. And I, I get to start back up with the same stuff again. And by this time, I'm so numb. I don't really care what I'm doing. I've lost my child. Um, I'm not, I'm present in body for my other children, but really I had checked out because I couldn't really, it was too much. And I really should have gotten my 14 year old, you know, counseling and treat. We all needed counseling. The whole family was messed up. And then right after that, uh, not long after that, this whole case came down. And my son has lost his best friend, his little brother. And now he's told that his mother is never coming home. And they well, really- let's, wait, let's, let's stop that for just a second. So, I mean, uh, that happened to your son. You went back to going ahead and allowing him to use your phone and doing this phone transfer thing. And then the police knock on your door. How did that all happen? They, uh, they apparently had stopped someone 
who was carrying drugs and he had my phone number. And so they came and got me. They and they just, they just arrested you and said, you're part of this conspiracy to sell? Of course, of course because they have my number and they, they're investigating anyway. They pull my phone records and they see other numbers. And it's I'm the connection. And so when I wouldn't cooperate, the people who had been, these people had been in prison multiple times for drugs. And they knew how this went. They knew how the game went. The first one to... Uh, testify against others is the one who's going to get the best deal. And since I'm holding out, I've got this attorney my family has hired and he tells me, don't, don't take the plea. He said, you don't have any money. He said, you don't have any drugs. They haven't caught you with any drugs. Cause of course I've never had drugs before. And I take it to trial. I didn't know about conspiracy. They offered me three years. So I'm thinking when I was found guilty, that it might be double that, might be, but I was hoping it wasn't. I was thinking maybe five years because I didn't take the plea. I didn't find out until a week, um, uh, at, right before I got sentenced that a life sentence was on the table and it's called conspiracy. So the drugs, and I got convicted of attempted possession because they didn't have physical drugs. And everything they testified to. And then to add to that, the prosecutor put his uh, spin on it. He said, it's not 106, which they convicted me of attempted possession over the whole conspiracy. He said, I estimate that it's two to 3,000. Two to 3,000 what? Kilograms. Oh, this drug, the drugs, oh, gotcha. So- what even saw. I never saw, but- I was found guilty of attempted possession from the testimony, but the prosecutor came back in my pre-sentence report and they can't do that anymore because he's so angry with me because my trial went on for six weeks and I'm fighting a couple of times. I jumped up and said, I object because my attorney was so pitiful. He had time to prepare two years to prepare. He didn't have anything prepared. And he was sending the documents home when he realized that I could really point things out and I could help him every day before trial, after trial. He gave me a packet to go home and study. So they think that I'm just being arrogant in trial because I'm, I'm talking to him and writing notes and saying, ask him this, do that. And uh, so they spanked me. I got taxed with the trial penalty. Uh, that's really awful. And when I went to, uh, when they gave me the paperwork to tell me what I might be looking at, it said, because it was an estimated two to 3,000, that it was a mandatory life plus 25 years is what I got. And so it was on Halloween. The jury was hung uh, most of the week but it was Halloween and they had some mothers on there and they wanted to get back and trick or treat, go trick or treating with their kids. So they didn't want to be sequestered because they told them, if you don't come back with a, a verdict, you will be sequestered. And they came back on Halloween with a guilty verdict of attempted possession, not possession, attempted. But for attempted possession, you got life plus 25? And there were no drugs ever found? No, they didn't have any drugs. In fact, 
they went to and got drugs from another case and brought them into the jury and had to tell them this is what these drugs look like. And so I'm looking over there at the drugs. This is the first time I've seen what they look like, too. Uh, but it didn't matter because under the in state, you couldn't have they couldn't have done that. The state would never have arrested me because they don't accept hearsay. You have to have evidence. They don't. And so for mine, it was testimony. It was not physical drugs. And so here I am uh, on Halloween and I'm handcuffed and the agents are in my ear saying trick or treat, trick or treat. And I'm, I'm cuffed. And I could hear my family crying, my children crying. You know, when I went to be sentenced and they heard that verdict, I mean, that uh, life sentence. And my judge even said on the record, she said that she that she was recommending that I be sent to a facility that could take care of my mental needs because a woman such as yourself is going to need uh, mental care to come to grips that you're never coming home. And honestly and truly, Montel, when she said that, I, I had already talked enough. I said to myself, you will lose your mind before I lose mine. So she became my inspiration to be even stronger in prison. But come on now, Allison, you got to tell me when you're standing in that courtroom and the gavel goes down, bang, life in prison without the chance of parole plus 25 years. What was the first reaction? Well, I heard my father. This is what really kept me going. When I heard my father, uh, it was silent for just this like pregnant moment. And my father, who you didn't hear cry because he's strong black man, he was sobbing. You could hear that big sob come out of him, out of him. And when I was young, my uncles were something else. They taught me how to fight, how to put a hold on somebody they can't get out of, how to get up on my, to take my heels off of the uh, ground and then throw my upper body weight into a punch. And the first time they realized I was tough, I'm only telling it, you this so you'll understand, is my uncle took his hand and punched me in the chest and I went down and jumped back up. And he did it again. I did the same thing. I jumped back up, even though I wanted to cry. I learned how to swallow tears and not do it. So when she said that and I heard that I swallowed tears, something I had learned to do from just learning how to fight until I could get by myself. And then I let the tears flow. And I just silently said to my father, it's going to be all right. So you, they, they uh, clearly took you right from the courtroom, right to prison, right? The right to the county jail. Right to the county jail. So now you're, in the county, you're in the county jail on night number one, on the first night. Yeah. Right? Second night. Day one, I'm in county jail. But at my, I never came home. From Halloween until Halloween 1996 to June the 6th, 2018, I was not free. I never came home to my family. And really, I didn't expect to be convicted because uh, the jury was hung and there was a lot of turmoil in the jury room. 
And I just knew that they did not have enough evidence to convict me. So when I left my home that morning, I didn't leave my house prepared for my children. I just left it like I was coming home. And and so you sat there for what three or four months before I guess the yeah the verdict, on, the verdict came out on Halloween the jury came back and then I had to go I had to go to my sentencing and Which then was when? it was March the twenty first but it was supposed to be February the twenty eighth but she realized I had never seen the recommendation so this whole time I'm in county jail waiting to be sentenced on the twenty eighth. I still don't know that there's a possibility of life. Gotcha. So then when you walked into the courtroom for sentencing and it's the same judge, I assume she said life without parole plus 25 years, right? Yeah. When they gave me the, uh, when I went on the 28th and they didn't, I didn't have a recommendation. They made sure I got it the next week. So when I saw the recommendation, I didn't think it was true. I thought maybe this had to be a mistake. And because I'd never been in trouble before, no arrest, been what you call a pretty upstanding citizen before this trouble. And so I, I thought really that only the people who have committed the most, I'm going to say terrible crimes, murder, child molestation, I mean something. And I still thought that this is not, not true. My, lawyer was avoiding me. He didn't even come and see me anymore to tell me that this was to pay close attention. He didn't want to face me. And so when I got there, I'm still expecting something different. And when I asked the judge to have mercy, she laughed at me because she said that I had been the most arrogant person that had ever come into her courtroom. And I really wasn't arrogant. I was fighting for my life. That's insane. So then she went ahead and swung down the gavel and gave you the verdict. Oh, with glee, she swung it down. What's that? With glee, she wanted to put me in my place. And of course, I mean, did your lawyer file for an appeal immediately or no? He filed for an appeal immediately. And that was turned down because he filed on the wrong thing. He knew what he was doing. Uh, Later on, he visited me in, in prison after I lost the appeal. And he said to me something so insane. He told me that he had grandchildren and he wanted to be there for them, basically, too. And he said, Alice, do whatever you need to do to me. I don't care. He said, just fight for your freedom. Well, I found out later on many. In fact, I didn't find out until uh, when Kim Kardashian uh came on the scene, I found out from another attorney that who who she hired from Memphis that it had been rumored about my attorney that he was in a lot of trouble. So I think he threw me under the bus as a deal. So, I mean, look, 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 okay, but Alice, let's go back here. So you get the final word and they walk you out of county prison and into a county jail into prison. The big house. The big house. You were struggling in the big house the first day, and you're looking at the rest of your life. I mean, I, tell me, what, where was your mind? What, 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 what were you thinking? You know, I never wrapped my head around. I never felt that I was going to spend the rest of my life in prison, and I fought the whole time for my freedom. First but, thing you did was what? File for an appeal. 
With the same lawyer? Yeah, he's the one who had to do it. But at this time, I thought he was on my side. So I was denied because he filed on a case that hadn't even been ruled on. And in the course of my appeal, the case was ruled. It wasn't won. So he's he's on. I'm on sink and sand from the, from the jump. So you, you, I mean, that, that, tell me, but how do you adjust to prison life right then? First year, the first year. First year that I was there, there was this lady in this wheelchair and she said to me, she said, what is your name? I guess she saw I looked a little lost there and I told her and she said, Alice, I don't even know this saying, but it stuck with me. She said, bloom where you're planted. She said, God knows where you are. And when I, I, I kind of clocked my head and looked at her and I thought, God does know where I'm at. And I just decided I'm going to live life. I'm not dead. And I'm going to I'm going to just where I'm at now. There's got to be some type of purpose in this. What can I do? So instead of feeling sorry for myself, I decided to just make myself uh, of service to other people. Montiel. that might sound noble, but it really helped me, too. And because I had computer skills and could type, I got a job in vocational technical. And they would, uh, what we did was we taught them how to use computers. We, I taught them how to type. And I also did, because I had did thousands of interviews in my career, because I even taught a is management for me class at FedEx where I travel around the country. So I would help them with resume preparation. I do mock interviews with them. And when I was there, I realized that the people who had long sentences, they were they couldn't take the classes. So I asked the other women, why are there no people in here who have long sentences? And they said they're not allowed to take them because for what? They're not going home. And I, I asked the question, how do you tell a woman not to hope? How do you tell a woman not to prepare for her future? That is so wrong. And so because the warden would use me to have her secretary sometimes type things up, uh, I wrote it up. I said, I'm going to fight. They kind of laughed at that. That it's useless. You're not going to win. I fought it and I won. And they changed it so 20% of the all of their classes had to have people with long sentences. And laws did change later on. And some of those very women were able to gain their freedom and they had skills and they were ready to work. I had a good friend that was in Dublin, which is where this happened. Her name was Cheryl. And Cheryl said that when I left there, every woman who had long sentences who got into those classes, she'd tell them, you have Alice Johnson to thank for this. I've always been a fighter. And so they built this, uh, they had this prison at Carswell, the same place that my judge had wanted to send me. I get shipped there because they built these high rises because the female population in prison is exploding and they have nowhere to put them. So they had to build more prisons, more high rises. So they built this, uh, let me see, it was four, four, four uh, different uh, units in these two high rises. That was four that was really, you had to you could go all the way to the top. It was eight floors and all. So they shipped me there for head count. 
because they needed to people who were healthy so they could work because it was a medical facility. So when I arrived at the medical facility, I was really very upset because I really wanted to stay in California because it was much better. And as soon as I saw that, got there, they had women in wheelchairs, some with no legs. I saw a woman with a cane who's blind, legally blind. And it was really kind of depressing for me. But I had at the What year is this? Which, which I mean, how, did, how long have you been in prison? Is this now? I'm sorry. I, got shipped, I got shipped there in 98. So you have been in prison now for two years. I had been I had been in a federal prison. I had been in county the other months, but I had been on federal ground for a little bit over a year. Got and it. so I started working in the chapel and I had to uh I loved it there. I had a chance to when the chapel and line would get really long, he would tell ask me if I could see what they wanted. And so when I see what they wanted, I'd help them. I'd pray with them. I'd listen to them and they'd leave the line. And so I started having my own line that, that was coming to me for counseling. It was really something. My journey was really something in prison, but I started writing more plays. And wait, 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 wait. You didn't even tell me about the plays yet. Let's back up for a second. Yeah, yeah. First year, first year you were in prison, you work towards helping other inmates. Yes. And I skills. Yeah, I put together a dance ministry because I could dance, Montel. Still can. Mm -hmm. Oh, got you. I still, I still can dance. Okay, I got you. <laughs> I got you. So I started doing skits at first, and I did for Black History Month. I did this really epic play. They loved it. I started just doing stuff, writing plays, uh, uh, just a couple of months after I got there because I could always write, but I had not picked up my pen and did it since i mean it had been years since i had written and so everybody would be so excited when they hear that i was gonna i mean they just it started brightening things up they would be excited because they're about to see drama i'm gonna make sure it's decorated i take toilet paper make flowers they'd have boxes and paint them and i'd make have them make props i found people who could paint who could sing could dance and so you know i they didn't want me to leave the women did not want me to leave there so I leave this place where I'm very much respected. And, uh, you know, because I have won this right for the women with long sentences to take classes. And they shipped me to a place that's got like a cloud hanging over it. Because this is where they have the women who are on hospice. It's like this is where from every female prison in the country, you're sent to Carswell today. Hmm. Many of them aged into, they were never going home. So when they got so sick, instead of letting them go, they come to Carswell and they will be put on the hospice floor. And the other floors, medical floors, where people needed uh, inmate nurses aides to help them. So I walk into this environment after being in sunny California, seeing beautiful plants, I walk into there's nothing but concrete, razor wire and steel. It was totally a culture shock to me. I'm in the big house for real now. And in this place, this is where you, did you, did you get certified as a nurse? I got certified as a hospice, uh, as a hospice volunteer, which I had to take training because when I started hearing about the women, I worked commissary for a while. And the first time I had to deliver uh, their groceries on their hospice floor. 
there was a woman who was dying of cancer and she started calling out for me. She didn't know my name. She said, hey, miss, miss. And of all the things, she asked me if I would come into her room and pray with her. She didn't have any visitors. And so I went back to my room and I was in tears after seeing that because they are hidden away. I didn't see them. I, I didn't see them because they are, they are confined to their, most of them confined, many are confined to their beds and they don't really come outside. So I didn't even know about this part of the prison. And so I, I became certified and I've seen a lot of women die, Montel, because they get a chance to ask for the person who they want to sit with them. So I'd get calls in the middle of the night to report to the hospice unit that someone else wanted me to be uh, with them because they could choose who they wanted in their very last moments. But we had different other women who would take shifts. But if someone especially wanted you to be the person when they transition, they could ask for you. So I'm just, I'm getting wore out on the hospital. How many years did you do this? How many years did you do this? Almost three. Three? Yeah, almost three years with the hospice women. But wow. then the reason I couldn't do it any longer, my father passed away suddenly and I was grieving so that I couldn't, I could no longer do that. I couldn't, I couldn't sit with the women who were dying after my father died so suddenly, but I still would visit them. And I, I ended up putting together, helped coordinate a special Olympics for the women who have physical and mental challenges because they also have a floor, two floors is mental health out and mental health in. So they have a mental hospital in the hospital. Crazy. So now you did that, you, you hospitals for three years, then you worked in the mental ward for a couple of years? No, I just got them to participate. The women that were in wheelchairs, I helped coordinate a Special Olympics for them. They got the attention of the National Special Olympics. And they even came at Montel and gave me, and I, I ended up getting an honor. They called me, they gave me the certification, uh, a special award as the a special events coordinator of the year. This came, it had special Olympics on there. But the whole time now, even though I'm doing these things, I never stopped volunteering in the chapel. I'm still writing plays, putting on huge performances. So at the new prison, at the new prison. Yeah, at the new prison. I mean, they started letting people come from the outside to see my pres my plays because we're on a, a military base. So they let a lot of the people come in, but they could only get tickets. So many people could come in. And I stayed there for 15 years and there was nothing that was done, Holly, that I wasn't involved in it. And, and during, I, that, during that 15 year period of time, are you still working on your appeal? Oh, yes. I had gone to uh, I had taught myself. Uh, how to file motions. I had read so many legal books. I knew how to shepherdize. I knew how to do my own legal work now. And I started helping other women because people in prison, it's just the truth. They charge uh, people to help them with their legal work. I could type really good. I never charged a person a dime to help them. But I, I, I had to have balance in my life. I couldn't just, I had to live life and make the best of where I was because I'm not dead. They may have sentenced me to a living death sentence, but I'm not dead and I'm not going to be defeated and be a walking corpse. 
I'm going to live life to the fullest and I'm going to help the other women know that they can still find purpose and still live life. Nobody can take your life as long as you have breath. There's something you can do. So then how did how did you how did Kim Kardashian or you and Kim Kardashian, did you reach out to her? Did she reach out to you? No, that was that was a miracle. So I've been at Carswell 15 years. They send me to a new prison that's built in Aliceville that's even closer to home. And it's called Alice Goes to Aliceville. They were making a joke about that because the prison is named Aliceville. So I go there and I started just doing everything there. All kind of events. I'm, I'm just doing it. They, uh, cause it's in a very small town. And so the, the pop, the people in the community, when they started hearing about plays I'm doing, they only let so many come in and they had to get tickets, but they didn't have to pay for them. But they, it's because they had to have tickets to come in so it would be enough room for them. So I become very famous in prison for writing plays, original plays. I even did a Muddy Goes to Car Muddy Goes to Carswell when I was at Carswell. It was hilarious. I did a Sister Act Three. I did mainly faith-based plays. I did a original life and passion of Jesus Christ that became epic. I had people traveling into the prison from other places just to see my plays. I'd always do something for the women on Mother's Day because that was the biggest suicide time when people would be on suicide watch. You would think it would be the holidays, but it's Mother's Day. So I always made sure that I had something to present and something beautiful for them to see, to transform it into uh, something where it didn't feel like they were in prison. So the first time I, my image got out, the ACLU in 2013 had this campaign. I had just gotten there and they had this campaign to show people who had life sentences who had not uh, committed a violent crime. There were almost 4,000 of us and I got chosen. It was two women and four men. So I'm in these magazines and newspapers. You can read my story. They're interviewing my family. My daughter has a section in there. My family's talking about the fight and how this affected them. And then right after that, um, they had this clemency project 2014 where they were selecting people who had 10 years, had served 10 years had no criminal history long. I, I fit the criteria perfectly. I thought for sure I was going to get out then. And I got passed over. I had filed three clemency petitions. So they had this radiothon to talk about clemency and criminal justice reform. And I'm the only prisoner in the United States who got to do it. So they hear me on this radiothon. So then I got to speak at a college. We had just got video visitation. So they're Skyping me into this college, Honors College. So then Yale hears about it and they want me to speak at Yale. I speak at Yale, then the University of Washington. Then Van Jones did a home for the holidays thing, a hope for the holidays. It was one of them. I'm Skyped in and Google is paying for it. So now Google sees me and Google wants me to speak at their events. So I'm speaking at a YouTube event and uh, someone by the name of Jake Horowitz heard me speak and he spoke to another individual and said, we need to get her to do a video op-ed. And so I, the last university I spoke at was 
New York University, the University of New York, NYU. And I got my last clemency denial January. I was crying, waving Obama goodbye because I had been left behind. So they asked me to do a video op-ed. I do it. It goes viral. And Montel, you know, when I went to prison, there were no, there was no internet. So when they said that it had gone, at first they told me it was trending. I'm like, what is that? What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? So then they thought, they told me, Miss Alice, you just went viral. I wanted to go hide up under the bed. I was so scared because I thought I had introduced a virus into the internet. <laughs> so wow. Someone who Kim Kardashian follows tweeted it out, retweeted my and video. Van Jones, Van Jones was a good friend of Kim's, right? Yeah. Well, Van Jones hadn't met Kim at that point. Okay. They had became they came became friends behind my case. Gotcha. So uh, it got Kim sees the video, tweets out, this is so unfair. She contacts her lawyer, uh, one of her lawyers, Sean Holly, and Sean Holly finds me in prison and asks, the only information she gives me is that a very rich and famous client of hers would like to hire her to help me get out of jail. And she said, would you like that? I said, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> what do you think? I've been there at that point. I had already been there 21 years when all of this happened right at 21 years. It was a month. That was my month. It was October. And so I didn't know. I'm trying to figure out. She wouldn't tell me who her client was. So I asked my daughter. I'm on the phone. I said, will you mind Googling? I knew about Googling, even though I'd never Googled before because my daughter had used that Google term before when she was trying to find something. For me, so she Googled Sean Holly's clients. She was naming them off, and she said the Kardashian and Jenner family. I said, I know who it is. She said, You do? I said, It's Chris Jenner. Hmm. And she said, Well, Mama, what if it's Kim Kardashian? And I said, Kim, who? She said, You don't know who Kim Kardashian is. She had to explain to me who Kim Kardashian was. And sure enough, two days later, uh, Sean revealed to me it was Kim. So I'm running around the prison trying to find pictures of Kim. They tell me she's married to Kanye West. So I got Kanye, I got Kim pictures. And that's how I, that's how I first saw her was through a picture. Someone had cut her picture out of magazines. So everybody thought it was so funny because I didn't know Kim Kardashian. But really, she was a teenager when I went to prison. Sure. And we, yeah, we didn't get keeping up with the Kardashians in prison. Right. So then it must have been just uh, incredible for you when you found out how hard Kim started working for you. Right? Oh, yes. Well, we're on the phone now. I'm talking to Kim. Uh, she's getting legal calls and she'd be on the calls. And we kept having false alarms that December when they went to, uh, I, I can't say it was Camp David, but wherever they went to for Christmas, I've got it written down. I just can't remember. They said, Jared said that he was going to take my petition with him on their Christmas vacation. This is Jared Kushner. He got involved in this because Kim reached out to Jared Kushner, right? That's how Kim got in the White House. You know, that's how she got mm -hmm. her roles. She contacted Ivanka, who she knew from, you know, had been a friend of hers. And she told Jared because Jared was working on criminal justice reform. And Jared vetted my case and saw all the stuff that was in this like this is crazy. 
because there was no drugs in that case. And so he gets involved. And so he's helping Kim. They're having meetings. Van Jones, he's, you know, all of this. She's her and Van Jones are talking about me on his show. And um, it took seven months. People think that Kim just went to the White House and uh, President Trump said, yeah, we're going to let her go, Kim, because you're Kim Kardashian. That is not how it went down. It was seven months of hard fighting. Kim was making herself so knowledgeable at that time about why this could happen to me. That's when the bug bit her. The legal bug bit her. I think she always had it in a Montel because of her right. father. Yeah, because of her father, of course. And so, I mean, the, that to say the rest is history is an understatement. But, I mean, literally, after all that work, you got a pardon from President Trump. And yeah. that, did that not strike you initially as being a little odd? You didn't get one from Obama, but you got one from Trump? You know what? When uh, President Obama left, I started praying for President Trump. And I was praying Proverbs 21 and 1 that talks about the heart of the king being in the hands of the Lord and like rivers, like a stream. He could turn it any way he wanted to. So I just started praying for him and believing that I was coming home. I knew I was coming home. I, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but I, I was a dreamer. I had dreamt and saw, I had had a dream and saw myself coming home. And so I just held on. I never just really gave up hope. And I really had made my own self a promise that I was never going to lose faith. I don't care what happened. I'm never going to give up hope because my children for them and for my family who are out there fighting so hard for me, Montel, even when I felt like I was going to be down, my family would encourage me or something else would happen crazy. And I would... I have to, just like when I got knocked down by my uncle, I had to jump back up. I couldn't lay down. I couldn't stay down there. And so uh, when Kim kept getting her visit to the White House canceled, and I know some operatives in there who didn't want me to gain my freedom, who who ended up leaving the Trump administration. I'm sorry. Even when I think about it, it just makes me... Just uh, you really, it's I can't ever just talk about this and just talk about it like it's nothing. Sure. Uh, because there was there were some forces inside the Trump administration yeah. that didn't Ooh. want him to help you. Absolutely. And honestly, dumb one of his top legal people said they quit because Kim Kardashian, because of my case. They didn't want me to go home because you know, some things. You know, I, I can't say why they didn't. It's because of my charge. They didn't want him to do it. But they had already vetted my case and knew that I wasn't really a drug dealer. But even if I had been a drug dealer, did I deserve a life sentence? I've had no incidents. I was considered a model prisoner, had completed so many programs, had helped so many people. But they had vetted my case and they saw what it really was. And so when Kim... They finally got an audience because these operatives had been counseling her meeting. And when President Trump found out about it, he insisted that that they better not cancel her meeting, that he wanted her to come. So she got a, a audience with him on my birthday and she tweeted out, I saw it on the news. She said, uh, happy birthday, Alice, that today is for you and this is for you. And I'm watching TV and they had told me not to tell anyone that she was going to the White House. 
I'm lay, I'm in my room reading and listen to the radio and they come to my door. People come and say, Alice, you need to get up now. Your picture's all over the news. Kim Kardashian is headed to the White House for you. That's incredible. And we know what happened. I mean, she went to the White House and the seven president. Days later, look, it's something about that seven, seven months for, for them before she could get a meeting from the time she heard about my case and was fighting. Seven days after her meeting, I'm running across the street. And, you know, I've looked at that. When I see that image, I, I can't hardly look at it sometimes. It just fills me up. So I don't know if you know, but Kim Kardashian was the one who told me that I was going home. I didn't That's even know I was going. She called you and told you? or did yeah, she? This, this is what happened. I was, they were telling me that it was on the news, that it was on his desk. I went in my room and shut the door and started looking out the window because I had had so many different letdowns. And plus, Montel, let me be blunt about this. It was hamburger day. And you mm. have hamburgers once a week on a Wednesday. So I was not going to miss my hamburger for nothing. In fact, that was kind of common. It wasn't even that I was hungry. I just had to have some activity. I didn't want to hear nothing. So while I took the first bite, and before I could even chew it, they're calling my name to come back to the unit. And they said I had a legal call. When I got on the phone, my attorneys were on there and then Kim picked up and she tells me we did it. I, and I'm like, my heart stops. I said, did what? Because I really I don't want to hear nothing. She said she don't know. And they tell Kim that she's that she's um, learning for the first time. Kim was at a photo shoot. I've seen because they were filming her calling me. She's in her robe and she starts tearing up. You can hear my voice on the other end. And when she tells me that you're out of there, you're going home. Montel, when I tell you, I didn't just scream. I jumped so high. I'm telling you that people were beating on the doors and they were crying because they could hear me screaming. So they knew I knew, but it was already on TV. But I didn't see the TV because I had gone to lunch. Sure. You know, Alice, I'm, and look, I'm, I'm out of time right now. Oh. We haven't even gotten close to finishing half your story. So you have to promise me right now that you will come back on. I will come back. I love you, Montel. How about I get you? I'm going to talk to my folks and see if we can get you on in the next couple of weeks or so, okay? We want okay. you back so that we have a part two because I'm going to say this is the end of part one because I have all kinds of stuff to talk to you about. I have to talk to you about your memoir, which is out there, After Life, My Journey of uh, from Incarceration to Freedom. I have to talk to you about all of your advocacy work that you've been doing. I mean, you said something in the earlier part of this interview that people don't even know. You have worked yourself specifically to get how many people out? A total of 46 people a second chance to almost 30 clemencies, seven pardons and compassionate releases. And I and really it had a domino effect. It's more than that, because some of their co-defendants, when they got out, the judges let their co-defendants out. So we now, can it's incredible. We, we got so much more to talk about, Alice. We got to talk about the taking action for good. You're the CEO of this organization. We have so much to promise me right now. Please, will you come back? I would love to come back. I promise. Do me a little favor, though. You know, for those who may have some misconception about who Kim is, in your own words, what has Kim Kardashian done for you? Kim has given me my life back. I'm going to tell you, Montel, 
Many people saw that video, over 10 million views before it was over. And, you know, even my organization name, Taking Action, Kim didn't just see it and walk away. She took action. And she did what she could do, despite all of the naysayers saying that you don't know anything about criminal justice. But you know what she knew about? She knew about compassion and trying to do what she could do. She didn't have to do it. She had nothing to gain because everyone was being trolled at that time who went to the White House to meet with Donald Trump. And she put her brand on the line. And, you know, when you put and that's really her livelihood, when you put what you do on the line for another human being, you know, the Bible says there's no greater love. She laid she laid it down for me. So, you know, she'll always be that angel for me. I always call her my war angel because she went to war even during the whole process. When she went to that White House, she told me, Alice, no matter how this turns out, I never stop fighting for you. Well, her fight was the good fight, <laughs> and it really did what it was set out to do, and that's to get you home and free. You're coming back. I gotta, I gotta end this because my goodness, we've been talking for an hour, and I don't feel like we've been talking for five minutes. What I talk too much. <laughs> no, you don't talk too much. You don't talk enough. We need to hear more from you, and that's why I gotta have you back. We'll make sure we work it out. I'm gonna have my office reach out to you immediately, and let's schedule a time. So I know I got a lot of travel to do over the next couple of weeks. But as soon as I slow down, I want you back, okay? okay. I'm coming back, Montel. All right, Allison. And, you know, I thank you for all the good that you have done for so many. Thank you for all the good that you're doing for many right now. Thank you for all the hard work. And thank you for just being you. Look, thank you. Thank yes, you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being you too, Montel, for, for just showing an example of perseverance too. So thank you too. Yes, ma'am. All right, we will be back together again soon. I'm hoping that you will tune in. This just call this Alice Johnson part one, because Alice will be back for part two. Okay. And don't you miss it, okay? Thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel, Alice. Thank you. And being blunt too, baby. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.